Hi, and welcome back to part two of my look at prequels. Okay, so moving on into the 90s, we had uh, a prequel after we got a sequel to Nine and a Half Weeks, which I didn't even watch. So first, Nine and a Half Weeks came, 1986. Eleven years later, we got another Nine and a Half Weeks direct-to-video, and then a year later, we got the first Nine and a Half Weeks, which is... At the same time, a prequel not only to Nine and a Half Weeks, but also to Love in Paris, which I've never even heard of. I've at least heard of Nine and a Half Weeks, but jeez. It just... It, the, the depths to which we will go to in order to get prequels really astounds me. And this is somehow a prequel to not only Nine and a Half, half Weeks, but also uh, Love in Paris. Uh, okay. So, 1987, we got Dirty Dancing, and then in 2004, we got the well-known sequel, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Apparently, that's a prequel slash reimagining. Um, yeah. I don't know too many people who go praising Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. <laughs> it seems like it's a script that they were like, okay, so I've got this script. It's called Havana Nights. Okay, great. Can we rewrite it a little bit and make it into a sequel to Dirty Dancing? Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay, great. That's what we'll do. <laughs> That's got to be what the producer was thinking. I got the rights to produce uh, another film in the Dirty Dancing uh, genre and whatever. It's like, okay, well, could you just make it a separate story? Like, make it like an anthology story like you did, like uh, producers did with Halloween 3, where that's not the, the, the case, where it's not the same story in the same town with the same characters. It's a different story that's also set at Halloween, and this one, it's also about dirty dancing, but it's about different characters. I mean, by that, by that line of thinking, we could go ahead and, like, what, call Strictly Ballroom um, Dirty Dancing Australia. I don't know. Uh, so then, moving on. Uh, 1989, we got uh, The Little Mermaid. And then, uh, what is it? Like, 19 years later? We got The Little Mermaid Ariel's Beginning. It's Disney. It's the 2000s. It's direct-to-video. Enough said. I've already talked on that. Okay, so... Then from uh, Charles Band's Full Moon Pictures, we got Puppet Master and Puppet Master 2 in 1989 and 1991, respectively. I love the Full Moon Studios um, franchises, especially like all of these really weird ones. Some of these ones were so great, especially for just home video releases. Um, one of my favorites remains to this day, Dr. Mordred. But Robot Jocks is a favorite. Um, it's just amazing when you get down to it how how wonderful uh, some of these little movies are. And they're definitely cult movies. They were designed specifically to appeal to a certain cult audience, people who didn't have a movie theater in their town anymore or who couldn't make it over there, and ticket prices were increasing anyway, but you could still rent movies, and you didn't have to pay for popcorn or anything like that. You didn't have to worry about snacks. You could just have whatever you wanted. It was a great way to get a little entertainment for not a lot of money. I remember to this day, the neighborhood video store that we had a membership at, um, you had to have a membership back then, we uh, would go and rent movies on Sunday, and uh, then we'd be able to watch it for the week. But what we would do is, 
if you rented it on Sunday, since that's a low, uh, that's a low time for them in terms of sales or rentals rather, you could actually go ahead and get like two videos for the price of one. So it only cost you three bucks instead of six dollars. Pretty great, right? Okay. Well, anyway, so uh, that said, in 1991, so right around the same time we had Puppet Master 2, we got Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. And that's one of the great things about the Full Moon production is sort of like Roger Corman, you just pump those movies out. And it'll be direct-to-video, and it'll still be relatively good. I haven't seen this one, but uh, Charles Band has been really proud as a producer and uh, writer and director and uh, just in his uh, Full Moon production company, just working on all of this. He's been very proud of that kind of stuff for years. And so um, while you've got some flukes in the franchise, it's always just about, okay, you didn't like that well, that one well. Uh, so many months later, you'll have another one to watch in the series. We're already getting to work on it. We're already writing it. And it's amazing to see all that creativity put to work. Uh, so you never know. Uh, and uh, with the... With the Full Moon ones, it's supposed to be a little bit schlocky. It's supposed to be a little bit cheesy. It's okay to not like everything about it. That said, we get uh, Tremors 4, the sequel to Tremors, which came out in 1990. And uh, Tremors 4 is all about the origins of uh, the town that we see in the first Tremors movie, and it's meant to be just talking all about that. Um I've heard mixed things about it just because it is a prequel, but this came out in 04, direct-to-video, enough said. That's why it was a prequel. That's why it came out on video. That's why that the the time of of uh, of that it came out in the 2000s is why it's a prequel, because everyone was doing prequels because of Star Wars and others. Remember that this is the time period that gave us the TV series Star Trek Enterprise. And I don't even want to go into that, but just it's a case in point where people were crazy for these prequels. Uh, one thing that they haven't uh, covered thus far, and it doesn't look like they're touching at all, uh, because it's a prequel, but it's not a prequel to a movie that ever got made, is Super Mario Brothers. So this was right around that time. And Super Mario Brothers was actually written and filmed as a prequel to the next movie, which was going to be completely about what happens in the game, which is why so many people found it so confusing. Because Koopa was uh, a human-looking guy, played by Dennis Hopper. Uh, the mushrooms weren't really um, as much of a thing, and you didn't have like any any bearing and resemblance to the video game, and so it confused the heck out of people, despite having a huge budget and a lot of big-name stars in it. Fortunately, none of the actors really had their stars tainted by this, and they were still able to carry on with that. But a lot of people ignore that uh, Super Mario Brothers, the movie, was actually written and produced by the director as a, as a prequel, and then the next film that they have the cliffhanger for was going to be the actual Mario Brothers movie. At which point, why make it? Why make it into a prequel when you could easily do that as like almost any... Oh, well, we've got a lot of story here to tell. Then tell it some other time or do it as an animated 
home video thing to release right at the same time so that you don't have to spend as much time filming. You get the actors in to play the parts, but you don't have to spend as much time casting. You don't have to build all the sets, do all the stunts, spend all that money. Well, that's not what they decided to do. So, uh, 1992, we got the Twin Peaks prequel, Fire Walk With Me. Okay, that's interesting enough. But in all honesty, uh, I have never been that big a fan of Twin Peaks. Uh, I didn't get into David Lynch movies until I was much older. So I'll just move on. But that's another prequel that we got. And the prequels are only going to get more and more numerous as time uh, progresses. So 1991, we got an American tale, Five Goes West. I watched it. So did you probably if you were my age. And um, then in 1998 and 2000, we got a couple of direct-to-video sequels, An American Tale, The Treasure of Manhattan Island, and An American Tale, The Mystery of the Night Monster. And uh, these just reunited uh, a lot of the voice cast. Obviously, they would recast the child actor voices, but... Uh, you know, these were probably produced back-to-back -back as just some direct-to-video sequels capitalizing on uh, the popularity of the series and everything. So that's fine if that's what you want to do. I have absolutely no problem with it. But it does throw some people off a little bit when they don't realize that these are actually prequels. And realistically, if you wanted to enjoy them, you would probably watch them uh, in continuity watching an american tale then the two direct-to-video sequels which won't have as good an animation style won't have as good a musical direction um or a composition and won't have as good um backgrounds and uh, voice acting or anything like that but are still part of the series and uh, they were produced by uh universal cartoon studios so uh they are actually something at least uh they were uh also heavily influenced by larry latham which is always just worth noting uh so there was one author behind these two prequels that are technically also sequels to an american tale even though they came out after five goes west okay so next um silence of the lambs came out in 1991 and then hannibal came out 10 years later still with Anthony Hopkins in the role. And then a year later, after Hannibal, we got Red Dragon, which was a prequel. And then Hannibal Rising came out five years after that. And that was also yet another prequel. So this series is all over the place. But interestingly enough, there was another, uh, there was another story told uh, called, I think it was called Manhunter. It was produced back in the 80s. It was a bit of a flop. And it also featured the Hannibal character, and it was just a little bit different. But again, a lot of Silence of the Lambs has the same origin as uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho. Silence of the Lambs was largely influenced in terms of the um, in terms of the serial killer there with the woman in the pit. That character was based on Ed Gein. The making of uh, the woman's skin suit, gross, I know, but that's just a major plot point. That was actually part of something that they found on Ed Gein's property, was a human skin corset. And 
people speculated that uh, there may have been some kind of uh, interest he had in uh, being, uh, you know, a different gender than he was assigned at birth. But that's never been proven and it has no basis in facts. It's just he made lots of things out of the various remains of the, the uh, women that he slaughtered. And there were so many unidentified bodies from over years of having done this that it really is just one of the most bizarre cases of a serial killer. Okay, so given that, let's move on. Okay, so Carlito's Way had a prequel called Carlito's Way Rise to Power. I didn't see either of them, but Carlito's Way was a very popular movie with uh, Al Pacino and Sean Penn. And uh, it was kind of a crime story drama. So it's not surprising that they made a prequel direct-to-video in the 2000s. Enough said, right? Right. Okay, so another film that was made in 1993 was Gettysburg. Okay, I remember uh, that was such a long film. I didn't sit through it, but uh, some family members did. And we were worried about them because they hadn't come back and it had been several hours. And we dropped by uh, after quite a long time had passed. And they were like, oh, it's just intermission. And we're like, what? How long is this movie? We were worried something had happened to them. So we went over to the cinema where they uh, were seeing it at. And we saw their truck uh, outside. And we're like, okay. Um, so, uh, and we saw them outside. And it was like, oh, yeah, it's just the intermission. You caught us at intermission. <laughs> so then 10 years later, we got the prequel called Gods and Generals. And I don't think anybody watched it. But it it was somewhat praised at its time, but it is based on a novel of the same name. So it's just worth noting that even Gettysburg had a prequel in the 2000s. Likewise, the same year, uh, we got a prequel to Dumb and Dumber called Dumb and Dumberer When Harry Met Lloyd. That one I actually remember being out on home video, but I guess it went to theaters first, very briefly. And yeah, it, it did not do well. The Flintstones came out in 94, and about six years later, we got a prequel called Viva Rock Vegas. And it had um, just, it, it wasn't a big hit, let me put it that way. It was meant as a spiritual, a spiritual recasting with younger actors and everything like that, but nobody loved it. It just didn't have the appeal that you got from having John Goodman and Rick Moranis, who were excellent cast, uh, excellent casting for that particular um that particular film even if you know in retrospect why did they need to ever make a live action version when you could just have the actors do the voices i mean it's a cartoon not every cartoon needs to be made into a live action okay so that said the lion king disney of course made a prequel called the lion king one and a half in 2004 and it was a direct-to-video sequel do you notice a pattern here I'm sure you do. So, 95, we got Casper, and then a couple of years later, we got Casper, Spirited Beginning, and Casper Meets Wendy, both of which are meant to be prequels 
both were direct to TV or direct to video movies. And they're just not as good. They try to use the same style of, of computer animation, but Casper Meets Wendy was specifically produced by Saban Entertainment, and it was their attempt at trying to get into movies after having done like some Power Rangers movies and so on. But, you know, it just, it, it doesn't quite <laughs> work on some levels there. Uh, not for me. I, I think I watched Casper Meets Wendy and I genuinely found it disappointing. Um, I forget if I watched Casper, A Spirited Beginning, but okay, here's a more recent prequel that we got. 95, we got Toy Story and 2022, we got Lightyear, but that's a little bit odd calling it a prequel because it's technically not. It's technically the story of the character that is on the cartoon show within the movie. So Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story is this cartoon show equivalent to like Woody's Roundup um, in Toy Story, where that was once a show and there was like a marionette that uh, played the part, sort of like Howdy Doody. Um, and it was a little bit like um, Thunderbirds or uh, Supercar and shows like that. But in this one, there's now a new animated character. Well, the thing is, we already had a Buzz Lightyear of Star Command TV series that was produced for a couple of years there. So I don't know why they felt the need to do that except to just produce it as a big-budget CGI cartoon. But again, this is Disney. They can't let anything die when it's a franchise. And likewise, the year before we got Lightyear, we got the prequel to 101 Dalmatians called Cruella. And a lot of people pointed out that it had a lot of similarities to other films, like Wicked, which isn't a film, it's a musical, but you get my point. We're going to make this villainous character sympathetic and give them a tragic backstory where, like, Dalmatians killed and ate her parents or some crap like that. And it doesn't matter. Nobody really sat down and said, Oh, you gotta see Cruella! No. Nobody said that. It didn't happen. So, best to kind of, you know move on from that but i haven't personally seen it i know that they cast like margot robbie as the lead which is a bit difficult considering that she's supposed to be glenn close's same character and you don't bother casting someone who looks like glenn close at a younger age like there has to be someone out there who could do the part who would at least look like glenn close instead of looking like margot robbie I'm just saying. They just cast her because she was a big name. All right. Well, anyway, so uh, similarly, we got From Dusk Till Dawn in 1996, same year as 101 Dalmatians. And then four years later, we got From Dusk Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. And I'm not going to poo-poo it because it could be absolutely amazing. I mean... The original From Dusk Till Dawn is kind of an offbeat vampire movie as it is. But if I was like, if you if you sat me down and you like, uh, like put out for, you know, put down for pizza and some beer and um, and said, OK, let's watch this movie. I'd, I'd be like, OK, I'll give it a shot. And I'll try to enjoy it because 
that's just me. I try to give every movie one chance. Uh, this one actually got um, a Best Home Video Award so from uh, the Saturn Awards, which is actually pretty prestigious. So that's rather impressive. So this might actually be better than I expect. So I'm going to have to check it out sometime. I love checking out some of these older, uh, less appreciated movies sometimes. So 1997, we got a really trippy sci-fi horror movie called Cube, and this thing took off in a big way. If you don't know about Cube, it was this, it originally started as like this series of spots on sci-fi where like this, um, this one director had this idea for different stuff you could do with like an elevator and all kinds of weird trippy stuff happening with an elevator. And eventually that person had so many creative ideas um, that sci-fi was like, you know what? You've got all these really brilliant ideas. Have you got like a script or a treatment or something? Because the spots were a success. They kept viewers tuned in when they did station identification for the sci-fi channel. So Cube was good. Cube 2 was popular. Cube... Uh, Cube to the third was, you know, which is technically Cube Cubed, was also popular. This series was a genuine hit because it made a lot of money for Sci-Fi Channel in terms of, uh, in terms of just advertising dollars, but it also was genuinely appealing entertainment for a lot of people who liked the sci-fi horror aspect and the sort of trippy nature of it, where like you weren't sure what the heck was going on, you weren't sure why these people were all trapped in this series of cubes and what all that was about. So it was really a lot of fun. And then in 2004, the the same uh, people behind it, presumably, gave us uh, Cube Zero. And I haven't seen it. But I think I've seen parts of it, and I found it um, unfortunate, because once again, it's a 2004 direct-to-video prequel. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't love it. But at that point, it's like you're, you're doing exactly the same as everyone else. It's a little bit too conventional. That's kind of the problem. 1998, we got The Prince of Egypt. And then uh, two years later, we got Joseph, King of Dreams, direct uh, to video. And believe it or not, I just bought this on DVD from a thrift store in a two-movie um, two set. And I was like, oh, I actually want to watch that. I've seen parts of The Prince of Egypt. Easter is coming up. It's fun to watch uh, the story of Moses around that time because it's also Passover. So uh, a lot of people have praised both movies as kind of forgotten gems and interestingly done, well-told, well-cast and everything with good music and animation styles. Very different from Disney. So I'm actually going to have to watch Joseph King of Dreams now. You know, it's going to be perfect for the Passover Easter celebration and everything. Uh, but yeah, that's one where I would say totally watch it. It's from the same creative team. It's made shortly after the first one. Direct-to-video does not necessarily mean bad, as I've explained with the Charles Band Full Moon Pictures situation. Now, on the other hand, Ring was an adaptation of a Japanese horror movie called Ringu. And in 2000, just two years later, we got Ring Zero Birthday. And I know nothing about it. I didn't really watch Ring. I watched parts of it and didn't like it. 
And then they just decided, okay, we're going to make sequels. I'm like, that's nice. You go ahead and watch that, everyone, and I'll just be over here not watching that. So moving on, we got The Brave Little Toaster in the 80s. In 1998, we got uh, direct-to-video sequel from Disney, The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars, which was actually based on a book by the same author, whereas a lot of changes were made uh, with the 80s version to make uh, the movie. And originally the movie was going to be completely CGI, but they didn't really have um, the technology advanced enough to make it at the time. So, okay. In 1999, just a year after The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars, we got The Brave Little Toaster to the Rescue, direct-to-video. No surprise there, Disney. And this one was apparently a prequel. And... I can't tell you a thing about it. I barely watched The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars. I barely remember it because it was so unmemorable. So, uh, moving on, we had Cruel Intentions, which, uh, if I remember correctly, was based on Dangerous Liaisons, or uh, in the original French, just uh, called uh, Les Liaisons, or Les Liaisons Dangereux. I forget exactly. And then... Two years later, we got Cruel Intentions 2 direct-to-video because did you like Cruel Intentions? No, not really. Well, here's Cruel Intentions 2 in your local video store. That's nice. <laughs> I don't like films about sociopaths manipulating and hurting people. So I'm not going to sit there and watch Cruel Intentions or Cruel Intentions 2. Okay, moving ahead. So, 1999, we got The Matrix, and then in 2003... As part of the Animatrix anthology of short films, in preparation for the release of uh, the two uh, sequels, The Matrix uh, Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, we got uh, The Second Renaissance, which was actually a two-parter. And, you know, it's supposed to be a prequel. It is a prequel in many ways, but it's kind of a documentary that's done from the perspective of this time that the story is taking place it's kind of an archive and it's using whatever footage it has it's a beautifully done movie as it is i've watched the animatrix several times it is very memorable very moving and several of the different parts are just beautifully done so i can recommend that one any day of the week uh, if you're a fan of the matrix series and the second renaissance really made it for a lot of people before they got uh, their tickets for The Matrix Reloaded because it was just uh, a good series. The Wachowskis and all of the various creative people behind uh, the shorts really did a wonderful job of just making the absolute most of this franchise while they were producing it. Uh, the fact that the next two movies were basically sequels to one another and just part one and two of a larger story, isn't that different when you consider that technically Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3 were made in tandem and were done as back-to-back -back sequels to kind of close out this trilogy and were done with Part 1 telling this part of the story where they go to the future and then they go back to 1955 and do all this uh, stuff there. And then Part 3 is just all in the Old West. Well, likewise, The Animatrix prepared a lot of people for that, and then uh, Reloaded and Revolutions were basically two parts of one contiguous story, whereas the first one 
was itself in a self-encapsulated episode. So it does work in a lot of ways um, in terms of that. And, and that's one of the reasons why if there's a prequel that actually breaks the mold, it's the second Renaissance because it does build up a lot and fill in a lot. And it borrows so much from everything from Metropolis to uh, just all of these different kinds of amazing images and utilizing a lot of what we know contemporarily from our culture. Uh, like the advertisement for the flying car that um, the machines build and design as a way to just like uh, outperform human uh, engineering and perform better. And it, it's like seeing all of that, just seeing all of the different animation styles and all of the different aspects of the uh, storytelling. It's just uh, one of the most fascinating animated features that you can probably see in your lifetime. All right, so moving on. 1999, we got uh, Tarzan, and six years later, Disney, direct-to-video, Tarzan 2, a prequel. Yeah, we'll move on. Uh, 2000, we got Final Destination, and then 11 years later, we got Final Destination 5. I didn't even know that that was a prequel. That's weird. <laughs> Okay, so now we come to one of the biggies. Are you ready? I don't think you are. X-Men, right? Okay, X-Men came out in 2000. It was huge. It was, you know, just one of the biggest movies that summer. And this led to a series of various prequels that got made. First was X-Men Origins Wolverine, which they were planning on eventually turning into a series of films that basically got rebooted in X-Men First Class. And then that, in turn, spun out into a new timeline with recasting the actors. And, and you know, this led to Days of Future Past, in which you had a passing of the torch from the 2000s cast to the new cast, like James McAvoy and uh, Michael Fassbender and all that. And then that led eventually to X-Men Apocalypse and X-Men Dark Phoenix, which kind of wrapped up that uh, prequel series. Well, I didn't hate Wolverine. I thought it was a bit odd. I think it took a few liberties. But if you were to just watch Wolverine and then um, The Wolverine and then Logan, these are relatively okay movies. They're not the best but since Wolverine didn't perform as well as it could have, it was okay that they rebooted it in my mind. And then we got First Class, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, and Dark Phoenix. And the best of these are easily First Class and Days of Future Past. Days of Future Past being the better of those two. They just really went for it. They used the cast to the maximum effect. And I watched the Rogue cut that features the storyline with Rogue stepping in for um, Shadowcat. And it's pretty good. It, it, it's just a little bit longer, but it's no better or worse. So I can actually recommend that particular cut as well. Either version is perfectly fine, but the Rogue cut does offer just a little bit of an extra bit of the timeline. So... It's worth checking out. And of course, Days of Future Past features some of the most amazing scenes. Um, so, for example, we, we all know about the uh, Quicksilver time in a bottle uh, sequence. 
Uh, we know all about just so many different parts of the series that there's just there's so much to latch on to with Days of Future Past. And it's one of those ones where you can genuinely watch it, sit down at any part of it and have a relatively good time. They genuinely made an enjoyable movie. But I think that if you're going to watch that one, you should watch X-Men and X-Men First Class before seeing it just because it will help things. But as it is there, the, the X-Men series has genuinely been relatively good aside from Apocalypse. Apocalypse misstepped in a lot of ways. And then by the time we got around to Dark Phoenix, there were a lot of missteps in that one where it just kept getting darker and grittier <laughs> instead of being an exciting adventure with uh, super-powered humans. Okay, so next we had Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone, depending on what you prefer to call it. And we got an entire prequel series starting in 2016 from uh, a very short book that was written by some fans and then adapted and published by the same publisher with royalties going to J.K. Rowling. The Fantastic Beasts series starting with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Um, I liked the story. I liked a lot of the casting. I did not like the third film. And I don't like J.K. Rowling for being a horrific transphobe and racist. So I do not recommend these films. Okay, we'll move on. So 2001, we also got The Mummy Returns, which featured an entire subplot around a character just made up for this particular film called The Scorpion King. Uh, so Stephen Summers wanted had, had come up with this and wanted to do it and cast The Rock as uh, the lead, and you got, as a result, a year later, The Scorpion King, which was the prequel to this, all about this warlord who rose up and had all these adventures. Okay, great. Well, about six years later, you got The Scorpion King 2, direct-to-video, and The Scorpion King 3, four years after that. Three years after that, Scorpion King 4. And then one just simply titled Scorpion King Book of Souls in 2018. And after the Scorpion King, all of the sequels did not have The Rock, and they were all direct-to-video. So in the case of the latter ones, like uh, Scorpion King 4 and then the fifth film, it probably was um, direct-to-streaming, not just direct-to-video. So, yeah. But, interestingly enough, Scorpion King 3 does feature Ron Perlman. Might be worth checking out. I don't know. I was... I never... Uh, I, I didn't really care for Scorpion King like a lot of people, but... Uh, I don't know. It, it By the time I finally watched it, I don't think it was for me. Okay, so... Disney, once again, did a sequel, Monsters, Inc., and 12 years later, Monsters University. So... It's kind of a sequel, but also a prequel. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, what are you going to say? A lot of people liked Monsters University, and that's fine. It was enjoyable. You could watch it. But I was I, I, I didn't have any kids or anything like that, so it wasn't for me. Uh, so I didn't see it. I, I saw parts of it, and I thought, eh, this is okay. But then again, I, I never really 
watched Monsters, Inc. I, I came in on the middle of it one time, and I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this from the beginning and see what, what it's about. All right, moving on. So, of course, everyone knows about this prequel series. You have The Lord of the Rings in 2001 through 2003, and then 11 years later, we got The Hobbit Trilogy, a series that the director did not want to make. He was willing to produce and guide the creative direction and everything and have the same people on board to give it the same look and feel. But he did not want to direct it. He did not want to have all of the writing stuff entailed. And it basically killed his love for ever making any kind of adaptation or fiction ever again. Which is unfortunate because Peter Jackson is a really good director. One of my favorite movies by him is The Frighteners. And that is him really having a fun time making a ghost story. So, anyway, that said, the Hobbit trilogy is good, but the director is not happy. And you can kind of tell by the third one that it's just kind of dragging. Uh, no pun intended, dragging, dragon. Anyway, uh, but yeah. So, as it is... I enjoy it. It's well acted. It's well played. But there are fan edits that have shortened this one down to a much better uh, story, much smoother and more streamlined so that you aren't uh, dealing with all of the minutiae of three parts of a story that itself is just contained in one book. And you don't need to have it be spelled out over three movies. As it is, I don't hate it, and I have watched all three in their full length, but I don't think that it's necessarily as worth it as they were hoping. But they made their money over at New Line and everything, so whatever, they're happy. Uh, many fans of uh, the Cabin Fever series already know that it has a prequel called Patient Zero that came out five years after Fever 2 and 12 years after the original Cabin Fever Cabin Fever is a gross series, and I'm not really that interested in it. Uh, Internal or Infernal Affairs, rather, had a sequel a year later. But this is uh, kind of your uh, Hong Kong cinema, so you may not have heard of Infernal Affairs. But as it is, Infernal Affairs 2 is a prequel. Um, Van Wilder got a prequel called Van Wilder Freshman Year. And it was direct-to-video. No shocker. Uh, this, the live-action Scooby-Doo movies got a series of um, prequels. The Mystery Begins in 2009, Curse of the Lake Monster, which was a TV movie uh, in 2010. Actually, both of these were TV movies. And then a direct-to-video movie in 2018 called Daphne and Velma. Yeah. Um... I would probably watch Daphne and Velma, but, you know, th these are supposed to be prequels to the 2002 film. And we already know what the prequel is. The prequel is the TV series. That's their various adventures solving mysteries. The prequel is taken care of at the start of the movie where Mysteries, Inc. breaks up. But whatever. Okay, so... Texas Chainsaw Massacre got another prequel, but this is the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that got a prequel. So we've got the first one and then this one. Okay. So the remake got a prequel too called 
the beginning. That's the subtitle. I'm not going to say the full name. So once again, a remake of a movie based on Ed Gein gets another prequel. I have a headache now. Okay, so Underworld got a prequel called Rise of the Lycans. This was based on Underworld and Underworld Evolution. Because in 2009, oh, we've got this successful franchise, but we don't have anywhere for it to go. Let's make a third film and make it a prequel. Ugh. Okay. Well, the next one I'll defer over to Phelan Portius because he has covered the entire Wrong Dead franchise. Wrong Turn 1 through 3 was a bit of an odd series uh, from 2003 uh, through 2009, the last one, Wrong Turn 3, being a direct-to-video movie. And then the remaining two films were produced back-to-back, Wrong Turn 4, Bloody Beginnings, and Wrong Turn 5, Bloodlines. Those are both direct-to-video. And he has done full reviews on these. You can absolutely just check out his channel on YouTube or check out, I believe it's Phalus.com in order to uh, watch those. It's well worth it. So... Next, we've got uh, the various films in the Leprechaun series. (laughs) I know, we're talking Leprechaun now uh, with Warwick Davies. And in Leprechaun 4, he was in space. And then three years later, he was in the hood. And then three years after that, he was back to the hood. And uh, it's campy. It's goofy. Uh, Diamanda Hagen has done a whole review on uh, this where she's analyzed it and speculated that every time the leprechaun appears, it's a different leprechaun. Um, It's a worthwhile fan theory. And uh, personally, I never got much into leprechaun as a series. I didn't really see the first one. I saw parts of it and I was like, this is stupid. I'm not watching it. (laughs) But, you know, If you're a fan of goofy horror movies with, like, magical creatures just messing with people, it's fun. It's well uh, acted by Warwick Davies, who is having a wonderful time under all that heavy makeup. Uh, The sequels are really gruesome, uh, so if you are a fan of horror, then it's a fun series to watch, uh, especially for, like, a movie marathon or something like that, if you want to do that over a weekend and just have, like, a leprechaun movie marathon on St. Paddy's Day or something. Go for it, I say. Um, next, Hellraiser Bloodline in 1996 got multiple direct-to-video sequels, Inferno, Hellseeker, Deader, and Hellworld. And every single one apparently was not made as a Hellraiser film when it was written. But then when it got produced, they were like, okay, well, let's do that, but make it Hellraiser. (laughs) Because it involves a demon or a demonic figure we can make into Pinhead. Because reasons. So it's the Havana Knights treatment. Okay, so uh, next, Puss in Boots was made seven years after Shrek 2 when the, first, when the character was first introduced. And we only just now got a sequel to Puss in Boots recently. But as it is, um, people liked it. It was fun enough. They got a lot of the cast members back for it. And it was like, fine, okay. That's worth at least looking into. And a lot of people liked it. It apparently wasn't horrible. It would be funner to me if they actually produced it as 
just the story of Puss in Boots from the actual uh, fairy tale, but I don't know anything about it because I haven't really watched it, so I won't judge. Uh, next, we got Van Helsing, The London Assignment, which is an animated short that was released around the same time as Van Helsing as a way to build up uh, excitement over Van Helsing. Now, I actually have seen Van Helsing multiple times. I have a copy, and it is astoundingly cheesy. The overacting and the way in which the actors chew the scenery is fantastic, but I would rather, because I think I saw The London Assignment at one point in the distant past, years and years ago, and uh, I liked it better. It was subtler. I think it had better direction. So next we have uh, The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift came out in 06. And then anyone who's watched this uh, series knows that there's Fast and Furious in 09 that was bringing back the cast from the original franchise and trying to get back to its roots. And then they just named the sequel after that, Fast Five, and then Fast and Furious 6. So apparently those three films were all prequels to Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Okay. So next uh, we can actually talk about a movie that I have seen, and it's interesting to note. You have The Messengers, which uh, was an early role for Kristen Stewart, and it's not very good because the title makes no sense. There are no messengers in the story, but the writer was really upset that uh, his story got completely mutilated and turned into something else with just a lot of strange special effects and everything. So a couple years later, a direct-to-video sequel titled The Messengers to the Scarecrow was made, and apparently it was truer to the writer's vision. So he was much happier with it. But that said, The Messengers itself wasn't very good. So maybe The Messengers 2 is better. I can't really say. But I got The Messengers in like a four pack of movies. <laughs> like just it, like each disc is two movies. Yeah. So that's what we get. So, I mean, you can check them out. They're OK for horror schlock. But The Messengers has a very bad jump scare that is totally unearned. And they bothered to put two jump scares back to back that absolutely ticked me off. And it would have played better if they hadn't done the music sting. Uh, this is early in the film, so I'm not spoiling anything for you. But I didn't like The Messengers, uh, largely because it went for an early double jump scare that just ticked me off. Because it wasn't earned. And had they not done the musical sting, it would have actually been an earned jump scare. I don't know. That's me. Okay, so Transformers has prequels. Bumblebee and Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Bumblebee, of course, in 2018 and Rise of the Beasts is coming out uh, in 2023. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> but weirdly enough, the knockoff series, Transmorphers, that originally came out the first, you know, the very same year as Transformers from the Asylum, it came out with a prequel called Transmorphers to uh, Fall of Man in 2009. So, wow, even Transmorphers has a prequel. Even the Asylum is not immune to this. Marley and Me has a well-known prequel called The Puppy Years. Death Race, weirdly enough, the sequels to that are prequels. Death Race 2 and Death Race 3 Inferno. 
I haven't watched any of the Death Race series, but one thing that is impressive is they do actually bother getting, like, somewhat decent cast in this. Like, Death Race 3 Inferno, they actually have Danny Trejo and Ving Rhames. That's actually somewhat impressive. So, okay, Open Season had three films in his franchise <laughs> and open season three came out in 2011 as a direct-to-video sequel and five years later they released open season scared silly which sounds like it's just a an open season halloween special i don't know but moving on we get just uh orphan and then recently we got Orphan First Kill, a prequel. Okay. <laughs> and of course we had uh, Despicable Me. And then we got two prequels to that, Minions and Minions The Rise of Gru. Okay. And I won't even bother telling you about the Insidious prequels, because everyone knows about those if they know anything about the Insidious series. I haven't seen the Insidious series, but I know that the more recent films were prequels. So you've got uh, the Conjuring series that came out in 2013 and its sequel three years later. And then every film since then has been a prequel. Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, The Nun, which I didn't even know was tied into that. And Annabelle Comes Home. That's nice. <laughs> the Purge. You know the series well, all about a society that basically has a version of the Red Hour, if you're a Star Trek fan. Well, they had The Purge election year, and then two years later we got The First Purge as a prequel. How nice for you. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 1984 are both considered prequels to the Snyderverse. They're considered prequels to Man of Steel, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League. Which is interesting to note because Wonder Woman came out the same year as Justice League, and I would rather watch Wonder Woman any time compared to Justice League. And, oddly enough, Justice League is considered a prequel to Aquaman. I did not even know that. But, uh, Wikipedia bothers to list... Zack Snyder's Justice League, which would be the full cut, the Snyder cut, which I didn't hate, but I didn't love it either. Um, it was just a longer version of the same movie with some additional stuff that was relatively okay. Anyway, apparently that's a prequel. Who knew? So, I mentioned Godzilla and uh, King Kong and all the kaiju movies. Well, Kong Skull Island is considered a prequel to Godzilla vs. Kong and Godzilla King of the Monsters and all this other Godzilla American reboot stuff with all the CGI thrown at it that's possible. Uh, a lot of people, like myself, in, enjoyed Justice League War and Wonder Woman Bloodlines is a prequel to that, released five years after. Both are direct-to-video animated movies done by Warner Brothers Animation. So it's just worth noting all of that. Okay, so Kingsman uh, was a relatively popular um, series for mostly teenagers, just about like, you know, a kind of secret service, and they 
made a sequel to it? Well, in 2021, most of us know that they made a prequel called The King's Man that was supposed to be a prequel and tell you all about its formative years as an organization. And I mentioned The Hunger Games earlier in part one. Well, guess what? In 2023, they are going to produce The Hunger Games, the song, or the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So, yes, we will absolutely continue to get prequels until everyone who could possibly have watched all of this stuff no longer cares. I mean, let's think about this. The Hunger Games movie, the first one, came out in 2012. Its sequels came out in 2013, 2014, and 2015. So for four years, this was an annual thing of the latest Hunger Games movie. They were producing them back-to-back with Jennifer Lawrence in the lead. And she did a great job. This was four years of her life. And in 2023, so eight years after the last film was made, 11 years after the first film the first adaptation was released. We are getting a prequel because the studio is like, okay, is there something else we can use to milk some more money out of this franchise that we produced that isn't making us money anymore? (laughs) The studio execs are so creatively bankrupt. It, It was interesting when they were bothering to tap into a lot of these books to adapt them into something but at the same time there are other less less known books lesser known books that you could adapt into an interesting story with less of a budget and it would be more interesting than a lot of things this actually comes up in um in uh, an earlier discussion that i had years ago where someone was saying uh because i, I didn't care for ghostbusters 2016 subtitled answer the call I didn't care for it because it was largely improvised and a lot of it went for the very stupid, offensive humor. And someone tried to tell me that all of the family movies were going for stupid, offensive humor. So this led me to do a full investigation into the family films of 2016. And I found that there was one family movie that, because most of the other ones were animated, And Ghostbusters Answer the Call was not a family movie. I don't care what uh, you say. It was not. Um, But if you want to talk family movies that came out in 2016, that year, there was one based on a book called um, Middle School, The Worst Year of My Life. And it was intelligent. It did not go for lowbrow humor. It was very interesting because it was based off of a very beloved children's book and I watched it and I did not hate it. So there is, there, there is material out there where you can actually enjoy yourself. Um, and not everything is necessarily stupid and not everything is necessarily derivative where it's a prequel or it's a, a complete adaptation or a sequel or a spinoff or a reboot or something like that. In this particular case, the middle school book was based on a novel of the same name, but it's not something that you feel ashamed for watching. So I think that in general, people need to offer a little bit more perspective in terms of what they're watching, what they're getting out of a lot of this stuff, and try to feel a little bit um, more entitled 
to intelligent, original content. Because it's the only way that we're ever going to get better material out of the studio system. Because they just produce whatever they think will make money, and if something just makes money, then they'll automatically consider it a success and try to make more of that. And that's how we get so many of these god-awful prequels. Now, some of them, of course, I've pointed out, can be good, but the vast majority are not. There were prequels made to Paranormal Activity, for goodness sake. I didn't even mention those because it's a found footage movie. And they're not good. At least not for me, not from my perspective. I don't care for them. A lot of them you're watching nothing and then there's a jump scare. And then there's nothing for another several minutes and then there's a jump scare. I can go through that just without any of that. <laughs> You know, I can get that just walking around the woods at night or walking around my neighborhood and having a stray cat jump out at me or some crap like that. I don't need to have, uh, you know, I don't need to fork over some money and watch this found footage movie in order to get that. But that had prequels because, of course, it had prequels <laughs> because they got to milk more money out of this franchise, just like Amityville got prequels and just like all these other ones got prequels instead of actually giving us something original that we would want to enjoy, it's like, we know what you want, and you want more of this same regurgitated crap. <laughs> That's the same thing you saw before, but slightly different. That's what gave us the thing that people hated so much. That's what gave us some of these really awful prequels. And bear in mind, I briefly mentioned Kong Skull Island, but I didn't even say whether or not I considered it any good. And I liked it. I thought the setting was really good, setting it in like, uh, you know, like uh, roughly around the time of, of uh, the middle of the Cold War with uh, the same sort of sentiments around Vietnam and just having some of the same people who would have fought in Vietnam exploring this jungle island with um, all these monstrous animals all over it and having to figure out how to survive. I thought it was great. I thought they used their cast really well. And it was not wasted at all. It was one of the smarter movies in the franchise that came out compared to some of the stuff that I've seen. So I enjoyed it. Um, I forget if I've seen Wonder Woman Bloodlines. I haven't seen any of the Kingsman movies. I have watched The Hunger Games. I'm, I don't especially care if you want to make a prequel to that. This is fine. You're just trying to milk money out of, the, out of things and adapt one more book from the series. I already mentioned that the book came out. So if you've read it, fine. If you like any of these, if you, I won't criticize you. If you liked the Kingsman, I don't care. I don't care if you liked uh, the whole Kingsman franchise and the prequel and everything. This is fine. You can enjoy that. I'm never going to criticize you if, if you if you enjoyed these. If you like Zack Snyder and you really loved Zack, Zack Snyder's Justice League and you really like the Conjuring and the Annabelle series and the Purge for that matter, fine it's all fine i'm offering just my opinions on some of this stuff i don't like found footage movies i thought minions was at best okay i really liked despicable me it's great if you want to do like a double feature with uh, uh megamind uh, but i didn't care much for orphan i saw parts of it and it did not grab me I didn't much care for Transformers. I thought it was okay, but not great. And as a result, when the sequels came out, I didn't bother watching them. 
I already talked about uh, Transformers 2 in um, my review of um, in my year in film uh, of the year 2009. So you already know my thoughts on the franchise from that, um, especially with that particular sequel. Um, but, you know, if you liked The Messengers, that's fine. You can like that. If you like Fast and Furious, fine. I am never going to criticize anyone for liking a particular movie if that's what grabbed them. It's only what you get out of it that matters in the end. But in terms of a lot of this uh, stuff, a lot of these prequels that I've looked at, some of them are absolutely amazing and some of them are just cash grabs. The Disney ones are perfect examples of why it's not worth bothering. You know, you can you can watch them, you cannot watch them, but in the end... Disney just made them in order to put them on video store shelves and get people to buy them as gifts for birthdays and Christmas and whatnot. And that's it. They, they put it out there to make the money and, and uh, retain some of the rights to some of the uh, products as it was. So that's it. That's all that it's ever been about for a lot of these uh, Disney direct-to-video sequels that came out over the years. But you can like them. As it is, um, I'm personally not as big a fan of prequels. I think that some of the ones that I noted that were amazing are worth watching. And it, it's only because I gave them a chance. I, I keep saying, I give, I try to give every movie that I watch one chance, at the very least. Um, and that is true. That That is just something you do when you are a reviewer, when you are a critic, when you analyze movies. You sit down and you give each film one chance. And the ones that I really don't like, it is for a very good series of reasons. But if someone else told me that they loved it, I would be fine with it. I, I personally cannot stand the film. It's complicated. But when I first watched it, it was a, a copy that I had borrowed from a neighbor who also borrowed a couple movies from me. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't like it. And she's like, oh, I'm so surprised. I love that one. I'm like, that's understandable. If you like it, that's good. <laughs> you know, this is, this, there's some people who genuinely get frustrated by this. Uh, if you don't like the same movies as they did. And it's like, no, it, it just didn't reach out to me. It didn't grab me the way that it obviously grabbed you. That's okay. Maybe you were in a good place when you were watching it. I know that when I watched It's Complicated, I was in a terrible place in my life. But I also just did not like the movie. And that's okay. Me not liking a movie is just as valid as you liking a movie. It's just a matter of personal taste. I'll sit there and watch Theodore Rex, for goodness sake, and I won't hate every minute of it. I know it's a bad movie. I don't care. You know, I'll sit there and watch Roger Corman movies. And those are not very good movies, but I can enjoy them. They're fun. They're relatively good light entertainment. You want to talk about movies that really made it um, for like B movies um, and uh, direct to video stuff. Roger Corman movies are a treasure trove. Just with the Carnosaur series alone. <laughs> but a lot of his sci fi movies like Battle Beyond the Stars and uh, Space Raiders, you can have a great time watching that stuff. So, you know. The fun part with a lot of those ones, a lot of the Roger Corman movies and some of the Charles Band movies, is that one of the fun aspects, 
not a lot of them are prequels. A lot of them are original, one-off stories, not franchises. The only fun part with uh, the Roger Corman series of space movies is that you'll see a lot of the same ships play different parts because they just reuse models. And that's just fun. I like that. And if I were to try and speculate as to whether or not they were in a shared universe, I'd have too much fun with that. I'd have to go and sit down and watch a bunch of Roger Corman space movies with uh, the Pew Pew lasers and all these uh, actors who were kind of slumming it when they did the movie, but they're having a great time. And they only had to spend a couple of weeks on, on uh, set filming. And then, you know, that gave them the money to buy their house or something like that back in the day. It's worth it. It really is. And likewise, watching a lot of these prequels. I already mentioned that I'm definitely going to watch um, uh, Joseph King of Dreams and uh, The Prince of Egypt this Easter and Passover. I'm going to be watching those uh, just for fun. And um, th that's what a lot of this is meant to be about. All of these discussions, all of these reviews, all of this is meant to be for fun. If you are mad because I talked bad about a movie you especially loved it's okay i'm not saying you're bad for liking it i'm not saying that it's the worst movie ever all i'm saying is that i didn't like it so with that uh, i hope that that kind of smooths over any uh, sore feelings people might have over some of this and they don't feel like you know i just was sitting there dumping on every prequel out there but i genuinely don't think that prequels are the best move in a lot of situations i think that it gets really tiresome it gets old very quickly and it makes it harder for someone like me to actually enjoy watching it knowing that it's a prequel and you're trying to go back and retcon a lot of things in and explain a lot of stuff this to me was one of the problems with the star wars prequels because we saw what happened when George Lucas was just allowed to write whatever he wanted. As I mentioned uh, often to people, I did do a re-edit of the pod racing scene from episode one and just streamlined it. If it wasn't needed for the actual setting of the pod race, then it did not need to go in. So the one pack animal, the one, the one beast of burden farting on Jar Jar, guess what? That was out. Why? Because it's totally unnecessary. There's no need to have that in the scene. Um, the, the whole sequence, you have to maintain a certain amount of energy in action. So the scene of uh, Jabba the Hutt knocking a little frog creature off of, um, off of the railing and hearing it scream as it falls, unnecessary. Some of the crowd reactions, unnecessary. You can actually cut out a lot from that scene, and it'll amount to just like a minute or two, but it improves the pacing on it so much. So with the prequels, you need to have that sensibility of what kind of story are you trying to tell? Are you making a worthwhile story? Are you making it worth people's time and worth their energy to bother and see this prequel to what you are basically making something else about so with uh, the wolverine is is a good example a lot of people were relying solely on the star power and the brand name recognition to sell people on it and it was sort of the same thing with first class and then they bothered to write a tight story 
about Professor Xavier and Magneto in their formative years building this team of some of the early X-Men and turning it into something and helping them learn about their powers and learn how to be their best selves so that you saw character growth. If you're telling a story about people growing as, as characters, growing as individuals and growing as, as a team, then you've got something. Then you've got something people want to watch. That's the challenge. That's where more happens. And it's more of a story than what you came in thinking it was going to be. So there's a huge, huge difference. Likewise, Days of Future Past, same thing. Change happens for the characters over the course of the story. They gain something. They learn something about themselves. They become a better team in some way. That's a necessary element to most stories. By the time you're done telling it, the reader, the audience, whoever it is, has to be changed a little bit in order for it to have an impact. It needs to pass along some kind of message or lesson in some capacity. I mean, to that degree, there was a, a Disney flop that was trying to jump on the bandwagon of adapting a pre-existing property that wasn't, um, that wasn't already made in some way. Sort of like what happened with um, uh, The Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, where The Haunted Mansion kind of flopped and Pirates of the Caribbean led to an entire franchise. The Sorcerer's Apprentice, they bothered to take just the concept of the Sorcerer's Apprentice and get some big name actors on it, Nicolas Cage, of course, um, and uh, just put in some music, come up with a story, come up with some images that they could use to like develop uh, this idea and turn it into something that people would actually want to watch. And the, the ultimate result is actually a relatively good movie. Even though Sorcerer's Apprentice flopped because it wasn't really anything anyone wanted to see, it featured a lot of the uh, Joseph Campbell story arc and had a relatively good story uh, in terms of just all the different things that they threw in. They even threw in that the evil sorcerer had his own apprentice. <laughs> So, I mean, it's worth noting all of this stuff. They did some great stuff with the special effects. They made it nice and trippy and satisfying. It made you want to watch it. It was worth the bother. So in all, I think that you can make a story, whether it's original or whether it's a prequel or whether it's a sequel or whether it's even a reboot. You can totally make it work as long as you respect your audience and make the product into something that people really want to see. Instead of just saying, why am I watching this instead of going back and watching the original that I've had on DVD for, a, for at least a couple of years? You know, th that's the question. Why should I go bother watching a new Batman movie when I've got a slew of Batman movies already to watch that I already know I enjoy? Why should I go bother watching this prequel when I don't need a prequel? What's the point in it? You have to actually have something there for people, otherwise they aren't going to want to watch it, and they aren't going to want to rewatch it. It's the rewatch that matters. Is there something there enticing someone to rewatch what they've already seen? If you can manage that, then your reboots, your remakes, your prequels will all hold up better by far. 
I don't bother rewatching the Hobbit movies generally because there's only so much that I really want to see from the Hobbit movies for the umpteenth time. They're long. They're padded. If you do a re-edit of it, at least I can sort of see how the story flows a little bit differently from before. But as it is, it's a tricky subject. It's thorny. And it's better instead to try and figure out a little bit more that you can get out of this than just the basic. You know. So the fact that it's padded is one thing, but the fact that it's padded with additional content already written in by Tolkien, so at least it's substantive, is okay. Adding in a love story that was never in any of the writing is different. That is taking it in a very different direction. And while I'm okay with that love story, as I mentioned uh, before, the love story in itself is unnecessary to the greater plot. It's a subplot that they added in just to pad it a little bit more. But as it is, it's meant to be a tragic romance. It's meant to be a forbidden and tragic romance, akin somewhat to Romeo and Juliet in its own way. With a character that never existed before falling in love with one of the dwarves in the party. Okay. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. And really, that's the problem. A lot of prequels tend to leave people lukewarm, and it's not something that really should do that. It's something that should make a person want to see it again, and they should want to go back and watch the other stuff. I mean, one of the things that they left out here is uh, Gotham Knight. Batman Gotham Knight was a series of various shorts akin to the Animatrix, and technically several of its episodes as it was building up to the release of the dark knight from the nolan verse all of this was produced as part of it and don't you know it includes some prequel stories that are building up to uh the dark knight why would you not count that well because some of these stories don't necessarily take place in the nolan verse they take place just in the broader Batman story. So, they don't count it. But, at least a couple of the stories do take place in a similar context. And you could say that they are in the Nolan verse as much as anything. Why not? But with that said, it was weird that they didn't count that to me. But overall, there are some amazing stories out there, some in print, some in comics. Uh, some just as shorts that are well worth watching. And if any on these on this list piqued your interest and you didn't know that there was a prequel to that and it really entices you, go ahead and check it out. I encourage you because that's part of the fun of doing any kind of long form review like this where we do a large retrospective on, oh, things like uh, prequels. I did skip some because I just felt like they weren't necessary or I hadn't heard enough about the films. Like I didn't cover Vacancy 2, the first cut, because I don't know anything about that or Vacancy. Um, you know, I didn't really cover Marley and Me, the puppy years, because it's like a direct-to-video sequel that <laughs> you know what it's about. It's just a story telling you about the the character from Marley and Me, the, the, the man and the dog, from a period in the film and the book that wasn't 
or that was just glanced over and not included there. So it's just additional story from that. Uh, as it is, thank you for listening to all this. I hope that it has pleased you. Um, and uh, until next time, take care. Goodbye.